I tell you what, uh, I'm glad this show never really took off. This this is what being famous is like. Seems bad. Yeah. Yeah, I'm very, very glad not to be famous. I don't want to be in that position. Yeah, I'll take not becoming a 30 under 30 media luminary. Uh, <laughs> you know what? Uh, I've changed my mind. I don't want it. Do you think Griff from Blank Check Pod gets a lot of stalkers sabotaging his... Well, I don't need the other Griffin. Uh, McElroy? McElroy is the one that got that award. But I, I really? imagine they both have to deal with that. Yeah, they like both appeal to a pretty like uh, obsessive fan base, I feel like. Especially McElroy's, I imagine. Yeah. From what I well, understand. I mean, come on. Film people are weird. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I hope not. I hope neither of them have to deal with that. But yeah, no, it seems bad. I don't yeah, want it. I'm not a fan. Not a fan at all. So welcome again to the Good Trash Honorcast. We gather on our table. We discuss the films you'll never discuss in a film space course. This week's film is Rob Reiner's Kathy Bay, James Conn helmed Misery. Name a more iconic duo, I dare you. I. <laughs> James Conn and <laughs> Kathy Bates in this film. Uh, Adam Whisper Ward. Uh, but yeah, uh, yeah, very, very good stuff. We're really, really excited to be talking about this movie. And again, it's a movie that you'll never discuss in Film Studies Course. Oh, that is the conceit of this, yes. Yeah, which is definitely the case. Uh, if you're tuning in for the very first time, this is an analysis show, not a review show, and that does mean we're going to spoil this movie. So if you have not seen this joint from the early 90s, uh, well, sorry, uh, because is it ni- early 90s? Ni- 1990. 1990. 90, 90 30 flat. years. 30 years from misery. 90 flat. Um, if you haven't seen this movie in the th- last 30 years, we are going to spoil it at the end, but we'll avoid that in the first part of the show. We'll have the synopsis, which is spoiler-free. We'll have our thumbs-up, thumbs-down reviews, which are spoiler-gentle. Um, then moderate spoilers when we uh, expand our syllabus and a little uh, mental exercise that we all play together. And then finally, when we get down to business, all spoiler bets are off, and you will find out whether or not James Caan turns into corn. Uh, so there you go. Uh, that's not, it. You know how the show works now. That, that, that's Did we all. introduce ourselves? Oh, I'm still Dustin. I'm still Arthur. Uh, and I am still Dalton. And Arthur has a new home. That's right. Isn't that nice? Studio A squared. I gotta stay on the move. I love it. Look, they can't. They can't keep us down. Apocalypse Radio. They can't I'm, find us. I'm stuck at this one for a few years. That's though. yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. For a while, you are definitely contractually <laughs> obligated in a way. Yes. Ah, it's been a couple of weeks. It's nice. Be back around. Have some normalcy. Well, Jane. Arthur. Now that all the groundwork has been laid, why don't you tell us a little bit about the film Misery? For those who haven't seen this movie somehow, Dalton. Me, yeah. Best-selling romance novelist Paul Sheldon has finished his first non-franchise story at his traditional Colorado resort room. On his way back home to New York, Paul gets caught in a blizzard and wrecks his car. In the midst of the storm, Annie Wilkes comes to his rescue. He awakens in her home with broken legs and a messed up shoulder. He also discovers that She's his biggest fan. Having all his books and naming her prized pig after his book's protagonist, Misery. But as the storm passes and he starts to feel better, Paul realizes freedom might not be as available as Annie initially promised. Ooh, there you go. Very well done, Arthur. Yes, thank thank you you very much. Well, without any further ado, I'm going to go to you first, Dalton, since you are the uh, virgin viewer of Misery. Yes. What do you think? Do you like this? I tell you what, Rob Reiner, what a run. I mean, come on. Strong 80s. Oh, good Lord. What a what a run. Uh, I mean, this, uh, Prince Bride, Harry Met Sally, Stand By Me, like, boom, 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 boom. Yeah, just nonstop. Lights out. A wild. I think there's, oh, A Few Good Men. Yeah, they're right the first front of the 90s. I like that one less than those other ones, but still. It's great stuff. Uh, I watched this uh, in the, the Praise Down Discord server, which was a very fun time. Uh, this is a great movie to watch with people, because uh, I tell you what, it, it does not hold... Uh, anything back much in that that Stephen King uh fashion of plotting uh things go from bad to worse 
literally at every turn. And I, I do kind of love that, uh, especially in a, a horror movie. Uh, we've talked about that on the show before. Um, I really rambled about it on Aliens, I believe, way, way back. But that's the thing I love about that movie, and I think Misery has has that going for it as well. Just that constant ratcheting up of stakes. Things keep going wrong. Plans keep going awry. And in a situation like this where um, the action of the story is primarily confined uh, to one location, um, you do have to have that. You have to have those stakes continuing to ramp up, and uh, this film definitely uh, succeeds there. Uh, but we got to talk about performances. Oh, man, Kathy Bates. What did I mean? Just, I mean, obviously she'd been a working actor uh, before uh, getting this role. Um, but, man, obviously if you look at the arc of her career, her, her role as Annie Wilkes definitely is a big game changer for her, and you can see why, because she turns on a dime just constantly in this film, and it's always a believable turn from her. It always works, and she sells these incredible... I, the cockadoodie thing had me howling. She's so menacing and yet so damn funny in this movie, and I think that that is what, maybe one of my favorite things about Misery is how funny it is. It's got this just great dark current of humor running through it. Uh, obviously, uh, if you've seen the film, you know that in addition to kind of the central action with James Conn and Kathy Bates, we also have this B-plot. That was news to me, you know, having never seen the film before. Um, I didn't know that this this sheriff of the town uh, has this whole B-plot running throughout the film. And him, uh, this, this actor uh, and uh, the actor that plays his wife, they're just great. They have excellent old married couple banter. It rules... Uh, I became extremely invested in that storyline, and I think the film uh, really makes great use of that B-plot and threading it together. And that is, you know, that's a Stephen King... Uh, it's weird how much I know about Stephen King's uh, plotting tendencies, despite only having read, like, one or two of his books, if that. Uh, but it does that really great thing of not letting you see how uh, multiple stories are going to intersect, letting you realize that, well, these are going to obviously collide at some point, and making the way that that happens kind of uh, subvert your expectations. And I think that is the fun thing about this film. Uh, red herrings are deployed extremely effectively. Chekhov's household items uh, are deployed uh, at interesting times and pay off at interesting times. Uh, and uh, yeah, again, the, the items that become dangerous or become uh, of relevance to the story uh, are always hiding in plain sight, you know, but they're often in screen for so long, much in the way that a good comedy callback uh, brings the joke back just as you're starting to forget about it. I think Misery does a great job of bringing items back into the story just as they've gone to the back of your mind. Uh, and again, that was another fun thing about watching this. And I can I can only imagine being in a theater in 1990 because I bet this played like gangbusters on Friday night. Obviously, uh, it made a shit ton of money at the box office. Uh, but watching this uh, over the internet with a couple of people is a great time. Uh, th this movie's punchlines land with a crowd, that is for sure. Um, yeah, I love this a lot. I am so glad I finally got to catch up with this. Um, I, I remember realizing uh, at one point there had been this huge... Oh, it was the reveal that Annie uh, will maybe not be letting uh, our, our, our intrepid author off so easily. And there's like an hour and 15 minutes left in the movie when this, like, the masks come off. And at that point, I was like, oh, misery friggin' bobs. This is, this, is, this is a movie I should have caught up with much, much earlier. It's good stuff.
All right. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. What do you say, Mr. Arthur Gordon? Do you like misery? Do you like misery? That's a strange question to ask. It's a weird question to ask. And that pun is, you know, we're bringing misery to the world. Yeah. Like, it keeps coming up as a funny pun a throughout the film. It's a great, I mean, it's a, it's a fun title for that that intertextual character in his books. Um, I was really anxious to rewatch this one. Just I, I'd seen it a few years ago, and I loved it. I, I thought it was dynamite thin, and so there was this kind of nagging, is it going to hold up to what I you know, had this ideal of and kind of the way I've praised it through the years? And yeah, it does. I, I think it is just m- magnificent. And at every turn, and you already mentioned Kathy Bates, I don't really need to get into that because you gave her a glowing review, and she is an uh, absolute stunner here in, in this movie and what she does. And I think, likewise, James Caan is a great foil to that. And, and oh, yeah. Playing the straight man in, in that scenario and reacting so well at every turn and playing the game with her is, is the way he reacts is just genius. And I he think. has to do so much physical stuff. Uh, oh, yeah. Especially with the, the prop when legs. When his legs are, yeah. Yeah, or the when prosthetics, he, rather. Let me tell you, that moment where he's in the kitchen trying to get back to the bedroom. Nuts. Talk about raising the stakes. Woo. Yeah. Uh, I, I love it. I, I think it is masterfully directed. And, and I've, I, I love William Goldman's script, not just in the narrative and beats, but also just the dialogue. I think the dialogue is dynamite. Uh, I think uh, Annie gets some great lines outside of just her cock type of stuff. She has some just very poignant moments. Uh, yeah, just really interesting moments where, like, Annie gets to be extremely lucid and kind of say something that lands uh, in a moment. Yeah, and, and there's a great moment where she comes down, and it's a rainy day, and she's kind of dropped the facade, and it's a really interesting look into her interior life. Um, and also, like you said, uh, Richard Farnsworth, who plays the sheriff, is mm. he's, he's still delightful. That, Thank that you for subplot giving me that is such name. delight. It's so humorous. The, the <laughs> so banter good. with his wife, their interactions at the sheriff's department, and, and where that goes is, is incredible. Oh, and his costuming? Oh, yeah. Come on. The dude's yeah. got coats and shirts for days. Yeah, I, I, and vests that match the coats. Oh, so so yeah. Yeah, that was great. So Stylish, man. No country-ass looking. Ugh. Love him. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's meticulously well-directed. I think it's well-edited. I love that cold open where he celebrates, he pops his Dom Perignon, has his cigarette, jumps in that... I think the Mustang. Yeah, it's Mustang. 65 Mustang. Gorgeous car. Uh, starts playing Shotgun, and then boom, Blizzard, and we get that title card of Misery. I think it's a great cold open. It's I think a, it's one of the great cold opens in, in film. It's excellent stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so I, I have nothing but praise for the movie. I think uh, a lot of the other stuff to, to kind of get into thematically, I think, is you know how prescient it still is, and we'll get into that uh, later in the show, but... At every turn, yeah. Uh, like Dalton said, the way it raises the stakes, uh, when you realize there's an hour and 15 minutes left of them in this house together, like trying to figure out where it's going to go without getting boring or repetitive, I think it nails it at every turn. Uh, I'm a big fan of Misery. Glad we got to watch it. Uh, I'm excited Dalton got to watch it and uh, that it's held up to the hype. Uh, so, yeah. Very cool, very cool. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. I love this movie. I've watched this movie, I don't know, a dozen times. And so I'm a big fan of everything that we've already described so far. Farnsworth as the sheriff is great. Uh, the actress who plays his wife, name escapes me, but she is also solid. Uh, Kathy Bates, James Caan. Uh, hello, Lauren Bacall. Great, great Lauren bit. Bacall, great cameo. Yeah. Just a little cameo yeah. bit. And she's really selling that she's a literary agent. I believe that she's a literary agent, which is yeah. great. Didn't she get a special appearance by credit in the Huddy Credit or something, something like that? Like that I Love that comment. But yeah, she's she's got a great like what two three scenes. Mm-hmm. It's good stuff. Yeah, yeah. And I just so just thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed that the way it's shot as we've already described the way it's edited the way in which time passing is uh, taken care of in several different and creative ways. One time using yeah. just the various chapter headings on a typewriter. I mean that's it's just a great way of uh, sort of stitching 
the passage of time together yeah. and the sort of evolving, uh, you know, weight and color changes of James Caan and yeah. his costume. And, and staging him next to that window so you can see the elements outside as the, the snow passes sort of and the seasons change. Yeah, yeah it, it's just genius. It's really, really good. Um, I want to come back to the cold open and shotgun because um, yeah. what's crazy about that, there's a, there's a metatextual moment. I don't know how well you know your saxophone riffs. Um, but Not at all. I do. Uh-huh. And Shotgun, the saxophone riff is uh copied also as it opens up from an Aretha Franklin song called Rescue Me. And Oh, that's good stuff. And there's I there, there there's a way in which it calls that idea but it, instead of doing the two on the nose choice and going with the Aretha song, they do something else where there's there's a bit of an intuitive mental moment where you go, "Rescue me." Well, that's funny. And then it's not, but then it is. And again, th- th- this is the sort of restraint that we see in Rob Reiner as a director. Uh, there are moments in this movie that are like The Shining, but they're not in the same way, in, in a sort of like an homage, fanboy kind of way. Yeah. It's just we're, we're honoring and knowing and respecting and recognizing some of those bits of connectivity uh, to other Stephen King works and other you know bits of uh, Reiner's own filmography. It, it, it's a really, really restrained and confident hand. Uh, that Reiner's putting forward here, which is really, I mean, rare to see. It doesn't go big often, yeah. It is very restrained in terms of, like, what it finds scary. Uh, and that's a, a, a part of that restraint I wanted to make note of mentioning, and Dustin, I'm glad you brought it up. But yeah, like, the the choices of when scares are deployed or when, uh, how much tension is happening in a moment, uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. There's good stuff there. And that's how he's able to get away with moments that are big and, you know, gaudy and uh, even a little playing the melodrama a little bit. I mean, you know, he finishes the book and there's a lightning crash. There's a moment of Annie standing over the bed and there's a lightning. There's a really good lightning crash. (laughs) And the reason why it works is because he hasn't been gimmicking all the way up until that point. Totally. So you trust him and you go with it. As it occurs, and so it makes it pretty brilliant filmmaking. Uh, Kathy Bates won an Academy Award for this film. We, I mean, we've been talking about her performance, but yes, she deserves all of the things because for two as, Oscars in a row, they they gave a shit about acting in horror movies, and never again. I'm all about it. But what's fascinating about what she does, particularly with the performance, is that she's able to play mania, uh, rube ness, mm-hmm. um, uh, depression, and then just full out. Uh, Fierce, maniacal anger. Well, the way she rides this line between, like, you, you can never tell how, where the sincerity stops and the manipulation starts. Right. She yeah. hides it very well. And the way, I mean, and, and there's a way that she keeps her cards so close to her chest as she plays the game because she knows stuff but doesn't let on. Yes. He knows stuff, doesn't, and that back and forth is so well played on, on her behalf. Well, and the, there is a moment, we'll get more into this in spoiler territory, where there's a reveal of what her plan has been all along and what to mm-hmm. do. And uh, it's it's terrifying, and uh, you know, and I guess our Paul Sheldon character, played by James Caan, doesn't know about that, even because at that moment he's unable to. I'm trying to avoid spoilers really hard yeah. here, but it, it's brilliant. I mean, it just really, really works. Uh, in terms of its relationship to the book, I want to just say this. I've read the book a couple of times as well, and I really enjoy it. And I think this is one of the closest adaptations of Stephen King in really? terms of style, not just spirit, to follow Bazan's dichotomy yeah, here. Yeah. Um, stylistically, very, very similar. Uh, there's not a lot of significant changes uh, that I can recall, and I've never really thought about it directly in that sen- same kind of sense, but it's a very, very close analog because, I mean, it, it is just sort of this uh, 
captivity yeah, sort I mean, of story. Yeah, I mean, these are the beats. Yeah. It's not a lot of narrative tomfoolery as there can be in his stuff sometimes. A significant change um, that I just sort of want to throw out there yeah. is that the hobbling moment um, does not involve a sledgehammer in the, in the novel. It uh-huh. involves an axe and a blowtorch. Ooh. Oh, yikes. And only one foot. Ooh. Ooh, brother. But otherwise, pretty much identical. So I, I think the choice that was made is the right one, the, especially yes. the way it's done. Yeah, it's a very memorable way. Uh, yeah. I mean, again, a, a scene that I, I think has kind of become a, a calling card for Reiner's career and for Stephen King adaptations. It's I know about it, and I haven't seen the movie. Yeah, I, I think it works more because I think there is a way in which on screen it would have looked like, well, it's 1990, so it looked like a very much 80s special effect. I mean, how mm-hmm. do you shoot that? The axe comes in, the foot falls off, blood squirts out. I mean, it's going to look like that sort of slasher movie. I mean, I don't know how they would achieve that effect practically. I, I don't think it would have... It makes sense uh, in a novel, but for the tone of the film, yeah, I don't think... I think the choice they make makes much more sense. Yeah, I do too. So yeah. I, I like thank you for pointing that out. So anyway, that, that that's really the only significant thing that I can remember, uh, other than she, um, you know, sort of clinically describes the diamond stealing with wrapping the diamonds in leaves and smuggling them up the rectum, and I mean, it's it's you know the the, the clinical detail, a real there. digression for it's a like it's like okay, 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 and then she chops the dude's foot off. Yeah. So like, oh my gosh, um, there is a moment where. Uh, he has uh, been left by Annie for a few days, mm-hmm. and so there, there's sort of a callback to that moment where he's, you know, he fakes that he needs his pills. Yeah, there's a moment where she's just gone for a little while, and uh, he has to drink his own urine. And I mean, it's you oh know, wow, you know, it's like how am I going to survive? Like that becomes a real kind of question. So, and and that for length of time, it seems like that ought to be removed, and that's fine. So, but anyway, um, enjoyed it, and I'm glad to be here talking about it with you, fair fellows. So, without any further ado, let's move on to the next section of the show, which is the expanding the syllabus section, in which we do the mental exercise of saying we are teaching this film in any kind of class we want. It's a university-level course. It can be in any subject and within any discipline. We're going to pick the subject discipline and this movie and what we're going to be combining it with and what specific concepts we are attempting to instruct our young little uh, squishy minds full of gray goo into understanding and i go to you first arthur how do you expand the syllabus with misery yeah i think i want to jump into that biggie on the eye chart that idea of the fan and the creator that relationship here nice. you know in 1990 it's a little different because we don't have the internet <laughs> which has completely reshaped how that uh discourse shakes out totally um and so i think you know this movie is more prescient now than it was in 1990 i think it would be really interesting to kind of understand the critical dialogue at that point in 1990 you know what were you know because the first movie on my syllabus is going to be batman 1989 because i know Mm. there was a lot of discussion uh about and a lot of criticism of keaton as batman because he was the comedian yeah you're gonna have to pull like a bunch of old nerd magazines yeah and and that's exactly you know i mean it's a very niche audience at the point that you know these kind of discourses are happening so i'm kind of curious to see just how silly or you know satirical this was at the time i I know in the 90s the critic uh did a riff on this in one of the first episodes oh that rules they they do the the misery episode of the critic which is a lot of fun so i'm kind of you know i was always kind of wondering just how seriously minded this was but i think this movie in 2020 is a much more oh okay yeah uh because the part of james con is now played by uh, warner brothers uh annie wilkes is the the uh, DC fanboys. There you uh, go. And so, uh, you know, I, I'm kind of curious. Uh, and with 1989's Batman, I would also do The Dark Knight because there were the same discussions about sure. Heath Ledger as the Joker. Um, 
But yeah, this would be a pretty modern course, I think, because I'd start with Sonic the Hedgehog, wherein oh, yeah. we right had a on, movie right released, on. there were trailers played, and the internet had an uproar, went into a tizzy about the character This design. thing looks ugly. Change it, please. Yeah. And we had a studio give in to the fans, went, had their animators redesign the character. I don't think they didn't pay him or something like There was some controversy yeah, about I've how they treated their that. animators. Yeah. Which is real shady as far as that goes, yeah. and, and so it turns think, around and becomes like the highest opening for a movie based on a video game. Yeah, right? and probably one of the best rated video games I think of movies of all time. I think it's, it's probably got one of the best there. scores. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so there's. I a, mean, the bar is low, obviously. The, true, but, but I mean, it's it's a weird discourse to have because not only fans win, they were kind of right. And you know, yeah, to see them there's a bit of right. a self fulfilling prophecy. You know, sure. we're not going to go see your movie if your character's wrong, but you know. Yeah. I think there's a really interesting discourse there. And from there, I want to go to Star Wars. I'm going to talk about Rise of Skywalker, wherein J.J. Yeah. Abrams come back in to undercut kind of everything that's been built up to this point yeah. to sate the Reddit fans who are Well, and that's an interesting one, about. too. Yeah. Yeah, because you get to talk about the production that for a movie that almost happened, much like with uh, Return of the Jedi back, uh, you know, many, many years prior. And then you get to kind of talk about what are the things that actually had nothing to do with fan response because these are, you know, where, where do these, you know... It's an interesting conversation you get to have about uh, perception versus reality, I guess. Yeah, and you can talk about how franchises are laid out and planned in comparison with, like, MCU. Uh, and we could talk about the original trilogy and how there were some plans, but a lot of the key moments weren't known or or didn't come up until the end. Just, Back to the Future is another one where that kind of takes place, where, you know, we make a movie without ideas of a future, so... Not necessarily mapping out a franchise is the best idea, but sometimes it may be the better idea. You also get to, I guess, get to have to talk about Gamergate, I guess is probably the better way to yeah. put it. Yeah, because that's such a big moment in like uh, online discourse and fan culture, right? Yeah. Uh, from there, I want to talk about Captain Marvel, which has this kind of post-release uh, reception where all of the online fans review bombing. We get into mm -hmm. review bombing. Yeah. We talk about review bombing. Which is related to this, of yeah. course. Yeah, this, this continued like toxicity that starts to happen yeah like, where mil militant fanboys and whatnot fan peoples yeah it's very toxic and disheartening and yeah. frustrating uh but finally i'm gonna name it justice league and we're gonna talk about the, the snyder cut i, I yeah. think that's the the most apt comparison this this hashtag that forced uh warner brothers to give a man 20 million dollars to recut his movie using existing footage uh just so they could get some more subscribers on hbo max I wonder. I, I, oh, go ahead. Say these needlessly <laughs> unnecessary fanboys and fandom culture who have stoked this fire for I, I don't know, like five years or something, renting Skyriders and and doing all this nonsense to oh, spread their about message. The Skyrider. Uh, the thing that I, I like to think about is the, the the question that I puzzle over is: Did it lose so much money that Warner Brothers was just like, "I screw it, we can afford to lose another twenty million"? Or are they just like so they're positive that, like, look, we we know the numbers. We if we get X amount of subscribers, that's all we need for this yeah. to be profitable, right? Or something yeah. like I'm I'm fascinated by the business decision to go. Yeah. Well, it bombed once. What's what's the worst that could happen? Yeah. yeah. So now we get to work on this idea of streaming media, where that fits into the picture, totally. and how that can dictate and control the the studios and uh, culture. So yeah, that that's where I'd go with it, though. I don't want to kind of talk about that relationship of fan culture to the media and how that has shifted through the years. Very cool, very cool. I like that very much. Thank you, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Well, what do you say, Dalton? How would you expand the syllabus? Well, uh, a month or two now uh, ago when we talked about Swim Fan, I, I talked about uh, thrillers uh, that are directly about uh, intimate partner violence. 
uh, and in this kind of a similar vein, um, that was more of a, a uh, you know, a social issues class, uh, you know, a, a sociology class. This is going to be a straight up film class. Uh, and we're going to be looking at horror films and how horror uses abusive relationships uh, and abuse uh, as a metaphor uh, or, or uses horror as a metaphor for these other issues. Uh, and I, I think uh, talking about uh, t- toxicity in fan culture is great here, but I think also talking about uh, you know the ownership of art, right? Uh, the 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 deadlines uh, that uh, authors and creators are, are beholden to, right? Because uh, obviously Annie literally takes possession of. Uh, oh my gosh, what's James Con character's name? Uh, Paul, Paul Sheldon. Sheldon. Paul. Paul Sheldon. Thank you. Yeah, obviously Annie takes like possession of of Sheldon, but even if you know you're not chained to a bed by a, a nutso fan. Uh, you are beholden to contracts and book deals and advances and such. So I think uh, there's some interesting levels to the, the metaphors and misery. Uh, and again, also, we just see Annie uh, deploying kind of classic uh, abusive uh, tactics. Uh, so there's some Munchausen by proxy stuff. There's all kinds of like interesting things about uh, Annie's psychology and, and Sheldon, uh, the way he reacts to those things. Uh, so I think first we're going to look at... Uh, Mm, this, is, this is tough. Where do we want to start? I'm going to start with The Exorcist, uh, another film that uh, takes place prim- uh, well, where a lot of the biggest actions take place in a bedroom, uh, but a film that's you know less about abuse and more about the complicated uh, relationship between parents and children, uh, the relationships between science and, and spirituality, uh, and, and how uh, science can be abusive, spirituality can be abusive, and how they can both benefit each other. I know there's interesting intersections there in it, The Exorcist that I think will be fun to tease out. also want to look at 10 Cloverfield Lane, another isolation locked-in movie uh, dealing with uh, possessive peoples. Uh, we also get to get into some family stuff in that one. Uh, and then we'll move on to another family horror movie, The Lodge, from uh, just uh, this year, uh, actually. One of the few 2020 movies I've seen. Uh, but a film that I like quite a bit uh, deals with... Uh, uh, both uh, abuse or not abuse, but trauma within uh, parental relationships, uh, step parent relationships. We get to deal with uh, religious stuff a little bit more. Uh, and I think that'll be an interesting thing to talk about is the way religion factors into uh, a lot of these films about toxic relationships. And we kind of examine the, the use of uh, religious iconography and, and religious characters within horror. Uh, I, I think that'll be fun. Uh, we'll then move into a, an abusive friendship with Jennifer's body, also uh, dealing with some spooky uh, demons and whatnot. I think that'll be fun. Uh, and The Lodge keep uh, film about kind of keeping you on your toes uh, as to what's supernatural and what's not. I love that kind of stuff. Uh, and then we'll, we'll kind of look at Hereditary and Midsommar uh, from Ari Aster as a, a unit, probably. That's probably going to be like a couple of weeks because one of those movies is super long, but because both films are also very much about uh, relationships. Uh, and again, much like, uh, uh, oh my gosh, uh, Misery. Sorry, both of those films kind of deal with characters who are not maybe psychologically uh, safe to be around uh, sometimes, or at the very least are psychologically negligent and emotionally uh, negligent or downright abusive of people around them. Uh, I think both of those films deal with that kind of intersection of horror and and emotional uh, uh, endangerment, I guess, is the the best word I can think of right now. It's good stuff in in both of those films that I think relate to Misery in some interesting ways. Uh, I think we'll probably close out with something pretty schlocky, uh, since most of these are kind of heavy, and especially those two. We're going to look at Lights Out, uh, a movie uh, that I like quite a bit. What's the name? Kirsten brought it up uh, when she guested with us recently. Uh, But that's a film in which, uh, yeah, the specter of uh, domestic abuse 
gets to be a part of a ghost story. Uh, and I think uh, Maria Bello gives a pretty bonkers performance in that that I really like. Uh, really great cast all around, but she's kind of the, the big name there, the kind of prestige name to, to pin the movie on. But some truly excellent uh, scares in that movie, and I think it is uh, such an obvious choice to make The Fear of the Dark the central premise for your horror movie. It's weird that it took until the mid-2010s for that to be uh, something somebody tried. Uh, it, truly, it, it feels like a horror movie that should have happened early in the history of horror. Because fear of the dark seems like such a uh, ingrained childhood fear, right? It's fertile ground for a horror story. So to have a, a story about a monster that moves only in the dark is it's good stuff. And again, I think a fun place to end, kind of going with a really schlocky uh, ghost story after we do all these other ones. But again, I think looking at horror film. Uh, and the use of symbolism uh, in those uh, and the use of metaphor. Uh, it's going to be good stuff, I think. Dustin, what about you? What are you going to be talking about? Very cool, very cool. Uh, thank you for that, Dalton. Oh, uh, you're what, welcome. What I'm going to say is I would say this is a module in a cinema class. I'm not sure what the class is, mm -hmm. but at some point there would be a module on cinema and celebrity. And Ooh, okay. that's what I want to think about, just the, the phenomenon of celebrity itself. And I think, again, the, the sufferings of Paul Sheldon or the miseries of Paul Sheldon uh, definitely sort of play into one part of that stalkers and, and all of that uh, that goes along with it. Another film that I think we would use is how the rise of celebrity is sometimes more than the person can handle. And they're yeah. unable to, uh, again, cope with life. And it ends tragically. And that is uh, Oliver Stone's The Doors, uh, starring Val Kilmer. Oh, I thought and, you were going to talk about the uh, the Kurt Cobain movie. Um, oh, from, Soaked in Bleach. No, the one that there's a narrative one. Somebody, Kurt and Last Days. No, it's it's like loosely based on nah, Kurt I Cobain. Know. I haven't it's, seen it. So it's what's his deal? Guy did Elephant. Oh, uh, Gus Van Sant. Yeah, it's Gus Van Sant. Okay, it. that's what uh, I thought you were going to reference. Have not caught it. Oh, you don't yet, know about so, this one. Yeah. Um, it's up your alley. Obviously, I probably would. Be. Well, I love The Doors, um, and so it's a good movie. Of course you the do. The band and the the movie. Of course you do. And so, I, and again, Jim Morrison is just unable to sort of cope with those new situations and his own sort of growing addiction. And of course, you know, he ends up joining the Twenty Seven Club along with Kurt Cobain yeah. and others. And uh, goes very, very badly. So I think that would be an interesting sort of uh, play into that idea of celebrity. And then I would move in. So we've got that movie probably opening up. Uh, we've got the sort of, you know, you're famous and you've got the crazy fan. And then the end of uh, that kind of moment of career. So this is also kind of a chronological. Uh, well, uh, The Doors is 96, though, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's a little later. Um, that's a Hero from 2016, uh, which is uh, starring uh, Sam Elliott. In which he plays oh, this yeah, washed yeah. up western Good movie. character, kind of a man with no name kind of character that he yeah. had once played, and well, play, and plays a character somewhat similar to Sam Elliott. You know, Sam got by on those what beef? It's what's for dinner commercials. The character in this movie has like a, a milk Some, ad or something it's like a barbecue that. sauce. You that's know? what it is. You're it's what's right. good on your chicken. Yeah, yeah, you know? that's and, right. Uh, yeah, he's he's and so. Just that, and mostly you, you watch Sam Elliott smoke a lot of weed, which is really kind of funny. It's a fun by, movie, yeah, that's right. Itself. I forgot Nick Offerman's his weed dealer. Nick Offerman and him smoke a lot of weed. Uh, but it's it's a really fascinating sort of take on washed upness and uh, glimmering sort of moments of, uh, you know, renaissance, yeah. you know, when the McConaissance happened with Matthew McConaughey, you know, and other, uh, John Travolta has one in the 90s. And so there's a moment that's almost that that's not quite that for Sam Elliott's character. 
And uh, just to think about how cinema itself wrestles with these ideas of celebrity and fame and what that looks like. And so those would be three of the films that I would use in that particular block uh, to have that discussion. So there you go, dear listener. Your syllabus just got a lot longer. But Good without stuff. any further ado, I believe it's time to get down to business. It's business. It's business time. I don't know what you're trying to say. You're trying to say it's time for Well, Dustin, I want to start here both because it is kind of a big theme in this, but because it was kind of the feature of your class. I guess I, I think we should talk about Stephen King and his career and, you know, kind of his willingness to engage in his stories with the idea of, of fame. Uh, you know, his own fame sometimes, right? When he writes so, himself yeah. into the Dark Tower. Uh, but also I think, you know, you mentioned fame being too much to bear sometimes for these creatives who have all this, you know, damn money put behind their name and then they have to, uh, you know, deal with that pressure. Uh, and this is not the only movie about being stuck in a bed. Uh, that Stephen King has written, or only story, I should say, uh, Gerald's Game. There's Gerald's uh, Game, yeah. Uh, another one. So clearly, I, I think my bud knows something about uh, depression. Uh, we can only assume, uh, based on some of the other things he's written about uh, and the other things we know about his, his biography. But uh, yeah, again, an interesting person, a, a, a legendary uh, career. Uh, and I think it, this film uh, is really interesting uh, to look at, I guess, the story as a whole, uh, film and novel, or kind of interesting to look at, just kind of, thinking about Stephen King as an author, right? Well, and it is this sort of unsuspected kind of fame. I mean, if you are in a rock and roll band, you know, there is the, the fantasy and the possibility sort of enters your mind yeah, that you could yeah. have, you could make it big, right? Because that's what happens. That's that that's the culture of music since the 1940s, really, where, um, you know, these, these kinds of names were being created. But in the world of writing, of novels and novelists, Tom Clancy is super successful and has written a bunch of novels. He's gone. He's dead now. But Tom Clancy doesn't really have the sort of name recognition, notoriety kind of fame. Say with, say, a Dean Koontz or uh, I'm just thinking of some of the big Patterson. Names. Yeah, John who churn out a book a year. Yeah. John Grisham's the only one who I think is kind of almost there. But yeah, yeah I don't think anybody touches King. But, but here's, yeah, I was about to say, here's the thing. All of those names we just listed, can you picture a face? with any of them other than Stephen King. Correct, yeah. There you have it. And, 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 and so, I, I know a ton about Stephen King's, like, picadillos, and I, again, have mostly only seen his films, and yeah. I think that's kind of a huge part of it, right? Is like, his movies, or his books, are kind of ready-made, well, not in all cases. Some of them defy adaptation, but a lot of his novels, especially early on, are ready-made film adaptations. For sure, for sure. And that's and that sort of played into his success. And yeah. so, but his particular kind of notoriety, his particular kind of success, even, you know, against other horror writers like, say, uh, Clive Barker. Yeah, You sure. know, Neil Gaiman is about the closest person I can think of who's, like, in the, our contemporary moment. Yeah, and is very much a post-Stephen King figure, I right. think. Um, but that uh, all that all that to simply say is this: I don't think I think he expected and hoped to be successful, yeah, to be published, to keep working, and uh, to be able to make a living at his craft. But that was utterly unexpected, and uh, with that notoriety does come beggars and hangers on and scary stalker types, and uh, because as a rock and roll star or a rock and roll you know burgeoning star or hopeful star or wannabe star or whatever you have this sort of dream and uh again sort of expectation of this but i would imagine even the literary agents around king in his life and i think about Bacall's naivete you know at the end when she's like hey would you like to write about this horrible moment in your life it's like not really um, which is the same sort of question that was being asked of stephen king when he gets hit by a bus or yeah. a van and breaks his hip 
There you have it. Would you like to? Not really. Of course, that happens later. So this is prescient of yeah. that moment. But there, there is a way in which they're just literary agents and those in those circles are not really prepared for that kind of level. Uh, even when they have super successful franchises. I think about Thomas Harris and the Silence of the Lambs and Hannibal. I mean, super successful, super... Uh, there's a lot of money that that dude is making, but it's not... This is the same notoriety is just simply not experienced. And I, and I think what Paul Sheldon's experience of misery shows us is an ill-preparedness. I mean, he doesn't expect yeah. someone to say... I'm your number one fan, and for red flags to come up, just go, thank you, that's very sweet for you to say. Doesn't everybody say that? Let me sign a picture for you. Yeah. Well, not every person that says, I'm your biggest fan, pulls you out of a car wreck. So, uh, the, the, yeah, there you go. There, there, there's a tip-off. Uh, it is interesting, right, that Paul Sheldon, um, as a, let's go ahead and say a Stephen King insert character, is pigeonholed writing romance novels. Uh, I think it's a fun... Yeah, alternate life for Stephen King to imagine for himself, right? But still, even though he's, you know, had quite a great deal of success with things like, you know, The Dark Tower and The Stand, things that are not necessarily horror, surely uh, he's probably felt pressured to keep writing horror, uh, has felt pigeonholed as a horror Oh, they jumped all over his head when he published Eyes of the Dragon. Yeah, I was about to say, I'm sure you know a lot about his career, so I was hoping you could fill that in for... Yeah, Eyes of the Dragon is sort of a Tolkienian kind of fantasy story. I mean, not, not... not high fantasy of the Tolkien sense, but it's definitely you know dragons and sure. uh, palace intrigue. It's got a, it's got kind of a Game of Thrones kind of sense to it as well. Uh, it's a great book. I um, yeah. really enjoy it, but it's it's not a Stephen King book. Well, that's why he did but, that whole pin name thing for no, the Richard Bachman thing. Thank you. Yeah, all, all of those who ended up getting adaptations too. Not all, a lot of them. But right. Yeah, it's, it's and a those weird are career. kind of horror stories too. I was going to say, yeah. I mean, Running Man, Desperation. Yeah. He's not that far off of what he's already doing as as King. Well, and I think maybe that's why, right? He wants to pivot still to write Bachman. horror. Yeah, in a, as Bachman. Uh, yes, write his weirder, dumber horror stories under a, a different name to see if he succeeds. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a cool, a cool move. I think we've talked about that move of his on, on the show before. But yeah, he, he just seems to have an interesting relationship to his, his own celebrity. And but again, I think it is shining a light on the idea of unexpected celebrity, sure. which is a real thing that occurs. Yeah. Where oh, suddenly yeah. you've become a viral meme. No, yeah, I was say we live in an era of it where every day something's gone viral and everybody's got their fifteen minutes of fame on TikTok or YouTube mm-hmm. or Yeah. Yeah, Chewbacca mask mom didn't plan plan on being famous. Yeah. That yodeling Walmart kid. Uh, well, that kid wanted to be famous, unfortunately, I think. Yeah, let's take a moment to come back to that idea of pigeonholing, because one of the things that Paul Sheldon, as a writer, desperately wants to do is to get out of these sort of gothic romances, these Misery mm. Chastain novels. And I can't help but notice the similarity in names between Misery Chastain and Roland Deschain of the Dark Tower oh, series. Okay. And okay. I, I, again, I don't know if that's a thing sure but it certainly has a phonetic kind of quality towards yeah sure did take him a long time to finish that dark tower series huh and and then there's an entire plot within that series when stephen king casts himself in it about how he doesn't want to write the books and like roland and his uh merry band of characters end up showing up in stephen king's world to make him finish writing the books (laughs) that's very funny so you know that's i mean i don't know but yeah and it's i don't know it's weird i don't know how well those 
those did, right? Compared to his other books, I don't know how well those sold for him. They're they're very popular. They are. I know, okay. At least the gunslinger is. Gotcha. I think they continue I don't know how to the... be more popular as time goes by, yeah, especially as now people that it's have completed. Kind of spread the word and I mean, yeah, series novelization. But the thing about franchises and how you can get stuck in a franchise. Yeah. I mean the the way in which you are only known for doing the one thing, and there's other things that you can do. There's I... other creative modes in which you can operate. And you definitely think about this with actors. Uh, we've got two. Sure. Sure. And I think both were kind of lucky not to get, I, I you know, necessarily typecast. I don't know a lot about James Caan's early career. I know he did Thief, obviously, and he did yeah. Some, so that's kind of got that edge about him. I think Thief is kind of in response to Godfather, yeah. right? And is yeah. him he's using that, his celebrity to help yeah. a new filmmaker. But yeah, he's yeah. Edge is a, a great way to frame it. He kind of, I don't know. Paul Sheldon feels a little off the beaten path for him as far as his career. Well, yeah, I mean, he's very. I th- I think Khan himself kind of has a very sharp edge to him. He's, he's just his guy. demeanor, his tough look, guy, yeah. wise guy. You and know. I don't yeah. think that's Paul Sheldon at all. I think he's a very. I mean, he's, he's a writer. You know, you don't put those two things together typically. But when Paul Sheldon says, "I was a slum kid," you believe it coming out of James Khan's mouth. Yes. You believe, mm-hmm. Oh, this is a guy who like grew he's up some, real yeah. poor working class and like yeah. wrote his way out. You yeah. believe that? You're like, okay, cool, cool, cool. But uh, yeah, I, I think you're you're right uh, that it is kind of it's a different. Uh, mode that I'm used to seeing him in anyway. Yeah. And I think horror itself lends itself to that type of pigeonholing and typecasting. You know, oh, yeah. A lot of actors or actresses only, you know, have, they may have one successful role outside of horror, but once they start doing horror, I mean, that's kind of the lane they're in and they can't get out of that. Scream queens, of yeah. course. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. a good, good denotation. Yeah, absolutely. And so I, I thought about that and I also just thought about the ways in which uh, again, just being stuck within a franchise itself, the franchising of an idea, and that it just keeps on keeping on. And even the producers are sick of it. Yeah, but it sure. Keeps making stinking money, and you how can you going. not keep going? Well, I mean, that's the thing. You you talked about Tom Clancy. You talked about Ian Fleming. These are guys who continuously have books published posthumously by ghostwriters. People taking on that mantle, that name to write in that style because people like those books and they sell. Yeah. Well, and people can't stop making uh, video games with Tom Clancy's name on them, despite most <laughs> of them having nothing to do with his written works. Yeah. Just, ah, uh, yeah, the guy who writes techno babble uh, jingoism stuff. I'm in. Crichton's another one. There's been four or five sure. books published since his death of, from ghostwriters or completed by other people. Well, mm-hmm. and they can't stop uh, making Jurassic Parks. Right. Yeah, it's uh, the... the 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 ways in which a, a kind of like big work can take over somebody's entire career is is really interesting. Kind of a I imagine a bummer for for those those folks. Well, and that it does begin to control your life. I think about like estates and owning those intellectual properties, yeah. and like the descendants of your Lewises or your Tolkien's with Narnia or Lord of the Rings. You know, one of these days when George R. R. Martin uh, shuffles off the coil, yep. how you know somebody's gonna have to take running care of- Game of Thrones royalties and rights is gonna be a full time job. Yeah. Well, um, uh, Gale, what's his Robert Gale? Is that his name? Bob Zemeckis's uh, number two uh, for like the early part of his career. Uh, I just learned from you know blank check. Uh, we mentioned Griffin Newman earlier. They're they're covering uh, Zemeckis right now, and Bob Gale. I guess that's like what he does is just anytime there's a Back to the Future you know video game or theme park ride or whatever that they've got to like check with them on. That's what B- Bob, Bob is in charge mm-hmm. of Back to the Future, and huh. it's like it's it's overall canon and licensing and stuff. Interesting. Yeah. But to Dustin's point, yeah, like that just—I mean, they, the dude wrote a bunch of movies with Robert Zemeckis, and that just kind of became—you know—they still like each other, but they don't really work together anymore. That's his full-time job. It sounds like yuck. 
Yeah. And and, then, and it again, it sort of keeps you from being able to express yourself yeah. in other creative modes, and, and, and you're stuck. And so it, it's difficult, I think. You know, And I think in the post-Stephen King era, I think Neil Gaiman is an interesting case. Sure, point, sure, sure. Where he's a multimedia, so he writes for comics, he yeah. writes novels, he writes screenplays uh, yep. for film. And has uh, done a little bit of directing as well, which mm -hmm. is not bad. Uh, his one short film is great, actually. Wow. Um, a short film about Michael Bolton, not the one that worked for the UN, but the uh, painter. Uh, oh, but not the musician? Not the musician either. No, no. The, no the, uh, he paints these... Uh, not the character from Office Space. Large-breasted <laughs> vampire women. Uh, well, this is somebody I did not know about. <laughs> huh. Did I say Michael Bolton? John Bolton. John Bolton. That makes a lot more not, sense. Not, okay. not the UN I understand guy, John That makes a lot more sense. John yeah. Bolton. Sorry. Not the UN uh, guy. Well, Neil, what an interesting work you've chosen. Uh, uh, but uh, he makes a movie that doesn't feature the actual painter, but some of his paintings, and it's fictive. But it's a great movie. I think he's an interesting point of comparison, though, right. especially in terms of multimedia success, in terms of you know fantasy horror uh, being kind of the main avenue, uh, genre-wise, uh, I, I think, and the kind of cultural uh, name recognition. Uh, yeah, I think Gaiman is kind of... Uh, but he but he gets but, to do what he wants. He he, re he wrote for Norton. He wrote a, a, re a retelling of the Norse mythology, so he's got his yeah. North, you know thing produced and published by Norton, Nor of the Nor famous Norton anthologies from your undergrad English classes. And he has uh, also... You know, been able to just written some poetry, and he just gets to do what he wants to do. Good for him, and, which is great. But that's not ordinarily what happens. It has happened historically. Well, and it is that, that is the interesting thing, right? Once somebody reaches a certain point of cultural cachet, there is no struggle. They can just do whatever they want, and that that in and of itself, the the way in which personality uh, can can come to dominate a field, uh, any field, this is interesting. For sure. Uh, let's transition into Annie a little bit. And, uh, and just, what about her? There's so much. I mean, well, I, I, yeah. I mean, so here's the thing. Man, these dogs have thoughts on this movie, and I cannot blame them. Her her villainry, right? The villain of the movie is a woman, and yeah. so, I mean, gender comes into... Well, and this movie is not scared like Swim Fan is, right? Like, it ends with a violent physical struggle between the two of them. Right. It is a very... And it's... While romance... And to some extent, sexuality enter into the film in kind of um, maybe not like explicit ways, but definitely like in subtextual ways. Um, you know, it, it's definitely not in the mode of swim fan. Uh, I can't not talk about that movie now that we've done it. Unfortunately, I think it totally applies. In this Thank case. you. OK, yeah. good to know that I'm not I'm not uh, out on a limb here by myself. Uh, but but it is interesting. You're right. I lost the thread. I'm so sorry. Well, just the idea of the obsessed woman. The there we go. Yeah. Fear, right? And there's also there there's the obsessed woman, but there's also the physically imposing woman, mm -hmm. which I think is a. Uh, I don't know if that is that part of the novel. Yes, her strength is definitely. Oh, okay. Part of it, yeah. Well, her, man, her this role is lift and hoist Paul around. Truly is, tailor made for Kathy Bates. Yeah. At this point in her her career. So there's that initial problematic, and I, and I want to sort of name that in terms of swim fan. Okay. But I, I think there's something mitigating going on as well, and that is the fact that Paul Sheldon is a sort of gothic romance novel writer, mm -hmm. and the typical trope of the gothic romance is the imprisoned damsel. Sure, and, okay. And so there's a way in which what Paul Sheldon, the character, experiences in real life is a reversal of the often exploited trope of, you know, Not where I thought you were going with this at all, but I love this. Menacing older man, you know, yeah. younger woman 
uh, weaker woman yeah. uh, kind of control and overpowering, yeah. and just you, you know, and she has to escape from the high tower. Whatever menacing younger woman who physically, uh, yeah, dominates and imprisons uh, older, thinks he's wiser dude. Yeah, I, I'm not trying to say this movie's woke, but yeah, it's it's interesting. It's if nothing interesting, else, yeah, I think while we're talking about Annie, I don't know if this takes us. Maybe we need to uh, put a pin in one of these things. But I, I, one of the things I thought you were going to talk about is. Uh, an interest in it, and part of what I built my syllabus around is this use of religious folk, uh, fanatic uh, religious folk, as uh, villains within horror, uh, which is a, a really common trope. Something Stephen King plays with a lot. Sure, obviously is Carrie's you know, mom, Carrie's mom, uh, the mist, ah, gosh, yeah, a the bunch. Yeah. Uh, but the fanaticism. Uh, I'm trying to think. Of, I, I was trying to think about how it enters into horror, kind of across decades, especially American horror. Um, but I didn't really get far into thinking about that. So if either of you have have thoughts, jump in. But I just I think it's an interesting feature of Annie as a character. So I want to throw that into play. Well, I think it's a way uh, which horror writers do have a tendency to sort of want to play it different. That that, that one of the things about horror being such a conventional genre itself is that the conventions and the sort of meta knowledge of conventions mm-hmm. is not a new thing since Cabin in the Woods. It's a thing that horror writers have been aware of for a hot minute. Sure. And so they do like to play with that. And so the typical villainry that you find are these, you know, secret devil worshippers and these secret and and I do think, especially in the seventies, moving through the eighties, that that was a particular twist that a lot of horror writers said, let's make them religious fundamentalists and show how that can be just as scary as these as a spooky cultist. Yeah. Spooky cultist. And and I think that's good. You know, totally, and, and, totally. and definitely a good sociological lens on which to throw because there have been uh, quote unquote normals who have a religious background, who've done horrible, th- horrible things in the name of their understanding of faith. Yeah, and there is definitely a kind of change in American religiosity throughout, well, this, oh, the 20-year period of like the 70s through the 90s. I, I think you can't kind of understate. When does Misery the Book come out, just out of curiosity? Oh, gosh, you know? I don't know, in the 80s. It would be in the 80s. Yeah, not, not very long I know before his, the film adaptation. turnover on most of his books is pretty close. This was pretty tight, too, as I okay, recall. Especially in this period. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's uh, just something... Uh, that you made me think of Dustin mentioning um, kind of the time period that's going on here. I didn't think of, Oh, well there are these, these changes in, in especially cultural conversations happening through like the seventies through the nineties, especially with the satanic panic and uh, you know, uh, dealing with a lot of uh, and then you've got the church scandals that start to crop up even later. So there is kind of an interesting turn in the discourse around uh, religious institutions and religious fundamentalism up right. until, you know, the one big thing. Well, yeah. That changes it again. Right. And I would say this, that, you know, the trope itself, the convention itself is is played out where, you know, where you're going to find people who have a strong, deep religious background uh, of, of some sort. They're going to turn out to be bad guys. Well, it's a good motivator part, yeah. for con- uh, a controlling figure, right? Mm-hmm. It, it makes sense as a motivator for a right. character that wants to control another character. And so the interesting interplay is going to be where you find somebody who is, you know, faithful and, you know, practicing in some sort of traditional sense and that that's kind of a good thing. Um, I, I, I'm curious to see when that, that, that sort of goodness becomes interesting again. Well, and it's you know not a character that's foreign to Stephen King's work. Like there's plenty of sure. well-meaning clergy folk uh, throughout his his stories, uh, as mi- much as there are menacing ones too. Right, oh, and, and this also happens in other me. I'm thinking about Shepard. What's his name from Firefly? Oh yeah, yeah sure. Guy and, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. You know, they're, they're, they do happen, but it is totally. a much rarer kind of thing. Uh, the other thing that's interesting, though, about Annie Wilkes' uh, characterization mm-hmm. is her kitschiness. 
Oh, it's so good. And now we can, now that we're in spoiler territory, we can talk about the red herring, or not the red herring, the Chekhov's penguin. Mm-hmm. Uh, that God, <laughs> it, it is such a blink and you miss it moment. But if yep. you are paying attention, you will, it, somebody in the, the Discord mentioned it while we were watching it. I would notice immediately that that penguin was askew. Yeah. Uh, and they, wow, did they let you wait on that one? Especially if you notice the penguin be put back wrong. It goes so long that you could conceivably think, well, man, did the movie just like screw up there and I'm not expected to notice it? No, it's a huge plot point. And it's such a good, it goes so long that you could reasonably think it's a continuity error. I love it. It's such a great choice. And letting that character attribute of kitschiness, of kind of low-key hoarding, uh, factor into the plot in such a key way. I love that kind of stuff. Like tiny character details that you don't really think mean anything uh, impacting the larger story later on. Ugh, good shit. Well, you know, the owning of a Vietnamese potbelly pig and then snorting yeah. at the pig and, and Don Perignon, you know. <sighs> oh my God, I love her. But it, all of that rubeness is part of what motivates some of fan culture. And this is where we're going to mm. kind of come back and turn back into yeah, some yeah, of the things. The secondhand that, exposure to a life of glamour. Yeah, yeah. The, the sort of your, your own boredom in your own life. And therefore, and again, I mean, Annie Wilkes' history and her murdering of children. And sure. I mean, I mean there, mental illness, clearly there's a whole lot going on there. But there, there is a way in which obsession with a particular creative figure mm-hmm. or creative franchise that what it does is becomes a vicarious way of not really living yourself. Um, that it is just another sort of kitschy thing like Liberace, which is, again, a, just the kitschiest sort of piano music to be into, right? Sure. And uh, that, that she uh, is, a, is a woman who has not really explored much. She just found one or two things and has glommed onto those things. And I, I'm all for fans. I mean, the Harry Potter fans, I'm one of them, right? And I'm into it. But... I use not Harry me. Po- I'm not a fan of anything. I dare you to think of a thing I like. Yeah. I don't know. I like stuff. Aliens? Yeah, I like that one. Matrix? Yeah, I like that. John Wicks? Yeah, likes that. <laughs> See, look, I'm so I, I am there with Dustin as much as I poo-poo fan culture. But becoming part of a fan culture is if it's a life-giving and it's sort of something that speaks into one's own creative exploits. Yeah. I mean, I think does it, cosplayers does it, are thoroughly creative people. Amazing, interesting, and those are the the people who. Uh, uh, you know, when I say a dumb thing online and dunk on fam culture, it is it is people like that who remind me, well, it's not all bad. Yeah. And yeah, if it feeds creativity as opposed to like stunts uh, development, that's that's the line, right? Right. And, and what Annie Wilkes illustrates is the, the negative side of that line, that negative side of fandom where yeah. all you know is just the one thing that when she says that, oh, I know exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to finish this novel. And as soon as I get back to the last page, I'm going to turn right back to the front page. And I'm like, I'm a rereader, and I'm a person who gets into stuff, you know, and looks at something more than mm-hmm. once, sure. But I read other things. I, you know, I, I, I use it to keep exploring, and I use it to think about other parts of my life and, and deepen and enrich my life rather than to become a substitute for my own living. Well, a fun detail uh, to that aspect of Annie, right, is her, like, continuity-checking Paul. Uh, the the idea of like knowledge of the text is some sort of commodity is is a resource that uh, enriches you in some way. It doesn't. No, no. <laughs> but it is a funny moment in the movie, uh, and movie. I'm sure the thing all creators hate didn't more get than out anything. Of the cock a duty car, right? <laughs> God, it's so good. It's so good. 
Do you all have amnesia? She she truly, uh, and again, I, I hate to kind of sidetrack back to Kathy Bates' work. I'm talking about Annie as a character and as a as a, a, a thematic uh, a bringer of themes uh, and a character who makes choices. But man, Kathy Bates, speaking of choices, just I, not a misstep in this movie. Mm-mm. And what a specific character to like have to like bring like. Uh, real psychology too, and Arthur, you've mentioned this. Like the the, the levels at which she plays Annie, like really speak to uh, a real person. She isn't just a horror movie, yeah, uh, slasher, uh, and I think that is kind of her great strength. Yeah, I mean that's the thing about her. She plays her so, as you said, you know, dopey or rubish, but it, it feels like she's always three steps ahead. Yeah, no matter what, she knows and has kind of anticipated what he's obviously. I mean, she's read enough, or, you know, she's seen. If she's familiar with the trope, right? Yeah. And so she is kind of three steps ahead of him, anticipating where he's going to go, what he's going to do, what he can get into, what he can see, and what he can find. She's not dumb. Well, yeah, to that point, Arthur, yeah, you're you're right. Her her rudeness like, belies some like folksy wisdom, or at the very least, uh, uh, folksy gamesmanship. I mean, she didn't get away with killing a bunch of kids there by being have. dumb. Exactly. Right. Well, when Sheriff Buster shows up, this is that moment that oh, I was alluding to God, earlier. Dude. That she starts talking about how God told her uh, to write a novel, and she's handing him the pages. She is of... stealing Paul, Tra- Paul Sheldon's book. And yeah. that, I mean, she, I, I don't. You know, there's there's a sort of way in which she's got the suicide, murder, suicide plan in her head. But honestly, I don't think that's ever really in the cards. I think she that's fully, plan B. That's plan B. She yeah. fully intends to kill him and then take his or keep it. You know, getting eggs from the golden goose Ghost as long writing. as she can. Yeah, and uh, turning in these books under her own name and. You know, just living off the royalties and proceeds of his career. I mean, it's it, it's it's diabolical. It's is not just obsession, where she's you know a mad woman. Uh, she is definitely a mad woman, but there's there's a lot more going on there. And again, I think that nuance and subtlety, because I know people like Annie Wilkes, but none of them would probably do the things Annie Wilkes did. But any one of the little steps are utterly within my conceivable mind. I'm glad you bring that up because I think all of those tiny little details that make up Annie Wilkes are, uh, and you you say Madwoman, I think those details are the thing that kind of stop this from being potentially really problematic, right? Like mad, the general non-specific madness as, as a well, motivation for a horror Or gendered villain. hysteria. Bingo. Which we get with like the single white females totally. or the obsessions swim or swim fan. Yeah. yeah, I mean, again, we took swim Fail fan to task. Yeah. yeah, this gives Annie such detail and uh, again like Kathy Bates instills her with like so much depth that it, yeah it manages to uh, and again there's things that you could problematize for sure but it does manage to I think walk the line very successfully yeah for sure for sure um are there any other big thematics that we want to address with the uh misery there um no I think we pretty much got you you I had a lot of notes here that you touched on uh again I think uh Maybe just to to bring this home, I think Annie Wilkes uh, and Gerald's ghost and Gerald's game. Spoilers for that story. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I think they make for interesting. Obviously, there's lots of themes going on in these books, but they kind of make for interesting metaphors of depression. Right? This this force that you cannot defeat, uh, whether it's a handcuff uh, or or a uh, you know a, a capture. This this force that will not let you out of bed and will not let you do the things that you want to do and is forcing you to do things you don't want to do. I think, uh, again, Stephen King has had this career because he finds a way to uh, externalize human pain into spooky stories. I mean, that's he's very good at 
uh, milking real feeling and real emotion uh, for his scares. For sure. I would just mention in the novel, one of the through lines that sort of ties to King's character that's mm-hmm. sort of uh, removed to an extent from the film is uh, Annie does get him addicted to the Norville, the painkiller. Oh. And so uh, Stephen King's own history of addiction is, is also playing yeah. with this as that well. Makes sense. And so the, the metaphor of being tied down in the bed has sure. got that and depression working yeah. as well. So, very good, very good. Let's render a verdict, shall we, with Misery. I think this will be a very surprising verdict. Yeah, sure. Uh, um, Dalton, Shell for Trash. Ah, it's so nice. We As we make our, our slow transition, the season of spooky, it is great to start with a movie that is so, so damn good. I love it when films live up to the hype. Uh, yeah, this movie has continued to have cultural cachet. It has wormed its way into our minds. Uh, the, the gelding of Paul Sheldon is a thing that we all know about, even if we haven't seen, or at least I know, people of a certain age know about, I guess. I think most people, I don't know. The youth, uh, surely there's a gif of the, the sledging of that foot. It's so gross. That's got to be a gift people are using, right? We would call hobbling, not gelding. gelding I said gel- would... Google, yeah, gelding's gelding a different thing. Gelding involves a different body part. It's a different movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a very different movie. Anyway, uh, I, I love Misery. It was It's so nice, again, to, to see something and go, ah, yep, that makes sense. I see why people still talk about this 30 years later. It kicks ass. I like it a lot. Um, we, we've just spent a couple of, you know, uh, 90 minutes or so going on about it. Yeah, it's a shelfer for sure. For sure. All right, thank you very much. What do you say, Arthur? Absolutely shelving this movie. Of, of course. You're crazy? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and same. Shelf, 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 shelf. There uh, you have it. Love it so much. Um, Dalton, say words about media. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, if you have thoughts about misery that you want to share with us, you can do that. There's places for it. Uh, you can go to at good underscore trash on Twitter. Um, DMs are open. Uh, you can also just, you know, uh, see what we're into as far as movie news, uh, things that we're releasing on the website. Uh, you can also, uh, you know, see other podcasts that we uh, have a hand in helping out with. Uh, those will get uh, retweeted from that account. Uh, shows like The Wheel of Randy with Dan Wade, where Dan Wade sits with a guest and talks about the music of Randy Newman. The Praise Down with Heath and Alex, where uh, Heath and Alex uh, talk about Christian music and Christian culture uh, through a, a real sweet lens, uh, despite them being secular boys. It's a different show than it might sound like. And, uh, you know, if you want to join uh, their Discord server, you can listen to the record live and play around with their soundboard. It's a whole interactive fan experience now that uh, they don't do interviews, uh, what with, you know, all of the, the illness outside. Uh, so again, uh, that's at good underscore trash. If you want to keep up to date with us on Twitter, long form feedback, good trash genre cast at gmail.com. If you have a big ton of thoughts about misery, uh, or the show at large, obviously we would really appreciate it. If you rate review and subscribe, you know, the deal you've listened to a podcast before. Arthur, have we done the thing? Are we on Spotify yet? Or is that next month? Do we, yeah, it should be coming up soon. Okay. Well, Hey, listener, yep. uh, tell your friends if they, uh, that's what they use for podcasts or that's what you want to switch to. It's coming. It's in the works. Uh, did I miss anything? Ah, if you want to help us keep the lights on, uh, it turns out we got to pay the people that we host our podcast through more money to get on Spotify. Uh, you can go to patreon.com forward slash GTM, throw us a couple of bucks, and you can listen to Dustin and I play Monster of the Week. That's a good time. Tons of bonus content on that website there, uh, patreon.com forward slash GTM. That's the end. Social media is done. Very good, very good. Well, October is coming, guys, and that ah, means... yes, Shocktober. Shocktober, and Arthur has a special idea that he wants to say something about, and then Dalton will say words about the things that Arthur said. That is correct, because we uh, are celebrating 30 years of misery, and we're celebrating 30 years of Dalton. That's right. So we are turning the reins of programming over to our very own Dalton Stewart. He is going to program five weeks of Shocktober. Shocktober 9, Dalton's Mystery Box. 
Ooh. That's so, better than what I came up with. I like that. Now, he's going to reveal all five movies, but Dustin and I have also attempted to guess. So do you want to hear our guesses and then reveal, or do you want to reveal and then see if we were right? I want to hear your guesses before I reveal, but I do want to mention, uh, in case listeners haven't uh, listened to the last couple of episodes, or I guess maybe last week, Arthur has given me the caveat that even though I get to program uh, our horror marathon this year for my birthday, I do have to pick movies that are at least as old as me. Everything has to be from the year 1990 or earlier, uh, which made for a very fun gathering of movies. Uh, I did a lot of homework for this one. I thought about it hard. Uh, I'm ready to hear what you guys think I might have picked. Dustin, you'll go first. Okay, I'm going to go first, and I am really just struggling with this. Um, one, that I, I was given hints about sequels, and and I threw a couple of non-specific hints and, out and there, and like movies that I've recommended in the past. And so I mostly I'm just like, okay, these are before 1990 movies, and I think Dalton would have an interest in them. Okay, th- th- that's all I can say about them. All right. The first one I want to mention is the Japanese film House from 1977. Dustin, you did it. That's I, the one you recommended when yeah. we first started hanging out. Yeah. Yes. All right. All good. Right. Dustin's got one. We will be discussing Houseu. One for one. Uh, it'll all go down a hill from here. Um, I'm gonna then guess Poltergeist and all of its sequels. Well, I'll be dipped in pig shit. We will be discussing the Toby Hooper film or Steven Spielberg film, depending on who you ask. We'll talk about it. We will talk about it. We will be talking about Poltergeist. I crossed that one off my list. I wrote it down, but crossed it out. That is that is kind of my big uh, horror. Well, I guess I do have one more that could be considered a horror classic, but this one, I think Poltergeist looms a little larger. I'm two okay. for two. Um, and I was going back and forth because there's two different works by this particular director, okay. and I was just thinking what you would do to us, and I think you're going to go with The Hills Have Eyes. You were wrong. We will not be doing any Wes Craven uh, okay. on this marathon, or John Carpenter. Uh, they have both uh, remained out of contention, unfortunately. My last two picks are sort of just near and dear to my own heart okay. that are fun. Uh, the Fright Night, the original Fright Night film. Uh, Very nearly made my list, but no. And then lastly, Phantasm from Coscarelli. I also thought about Phantasm because it's of its clout. I didn't want to watch Phantasm, if I'm being honest. Hey, two out of five ain't bad. You did pretty not good. Quite so song. you landed Hazu and Poltergeist. Poltergeist. Yes. So we'll see if I can round it out. Right. I went first with William Batty's Exorcist Three. From 1990. No, I did not think Dang about it. that one at all, actually. It was a sequel and 90. I, I thought I hit two was, of those. I did see it was streaming and immediately went, no dice. All right. You said Cronen- or you said sexy, so I went with Cronenberg's uh-huh. Dead Ringers. Arthur, you got it, buddy. We Nailed will be discussing it. Dead Ringers. Excellent. Uh, yeah, it's going to be gross. Uh, it's going to be disgusting. Uh, and it was the reason uh, that I did not talk about some other uh, sexy horror movies, because that one's so gross from what I've heard. I think I see this on your list, but you didn't say it. I think you're going to pick Sleepaway Camp. I thought about Sleepaway Camp. I did not pick Sleepaway Camp. All right. Well, how are you feeling about Hellraiser 2 Hellbound? Uh, we will not be discussing Hellbound, unfortunately. Oh, Much to I'm Dustin's sad. chagrin. All right. So we will not be revisiting the Hellraiser franchise. Throwing this last one out there. Okay. My Bloody Valentine. Nope. Oh, wow. Well, the ones you have not gotten to. Uh, very good work, though, gentlemen. And do so... Name them in order, if um, you don't mind. Well, all right. I have not given much thought to the order of the marathon, so you'll get to decide that. <laughs> well, what are we me. doing next week? Well, next week we will be discussing the film. Uh, well, that's one of the sequels we'll be doing, I guess. We're going to open with a film that is a sequel to the film that opened last year's Shocktober. We will be discussing George A. Romero's Day of the Dead. Uh, we talked Dawn of the Dead last year. That was Dustin's blind spot for our uh, Shocktober nice. 8, the Ocho Marathon. Yeah. 
Uh, so yeah, I, I decided. You know what? Let's go ahead and close her out. Let's do Day of the Dead, baby. Okay. Uh, because Which I know I had have seen you actually. have seen that one, and but I know not a, Dawn, the a lot of people love Day of the Dead. It yeah. is kind of the, the the less heralded of the original three George Romero zombie flicks, but I know a lot of people love it very dearly. So we will open with Day of the Dead. Uh, we'll do those other three movies that the, the boys have guessed uh, there in the middle. Uh, and to close her out, uh, I wasn't going to do any horror comedies for this October. Usually in October, we try to get at least one horror comedy. Um, and I, I thought about not doing it. And then I did see that a film uh, that could be described as game-changing, I would say, uh, came out in the year I was born and as a sequel to one of the very, 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 very first films we discussed on this dumb podcast eight years ago, we will be discussing Gremlins 2. Nice. Um, truly. Oh, my. Uh, a, a film uh, so gonzo, you, you can't believe a Hollywood studio <laughs> ever allowed anyone to make it. Joe Dante made his uh, wildest uh, coked-out dreams come true, and I feel like it'll be a nice come-down from Dead Ringers, probably. Uh, so that's that's Shocktober 9. I'm very excited for the next five weeks of, of spooks and delights and scares and spiders. I cannot wait. Very cool, very cool. You keep watching, we'll keep talking, we'll see you all next time.